The Babylonian exile had ended, but the Jews remained exiled in a sense. They've been exiled because well, the land was meant to be that space in which they could freely keep God's commandments. But they didn't keep his commandments. And so the land made little sense for them to continue to possess. So they were exiled. But even after that exile had ended, they remained exiled. They were back in the promised land, but they were ruled by a pagan emperor and governor. The temple had been rebuilt, but by the imposter Herod, not the foretold son of King David. The chosen people had not been restored. They had not been vindicated. It looked as though they had no God and were wrong all along. They were still in exile, which was understood as the punishment for being unfaithful to their covenant with God. The one and only God who had created the world had selected the Jews to be the instrument through which he set things right. Now, though, he had to set things right with them, who were called to be a light to the nations. God had to deal with their sins first as individuals and as a people to end their exile. Their sacrifices were simply insufficient. He needed to do what he had always promised to do, to set things right by establishing himself as the universal king, by rebuilding the temple, by ending his people, by enabling his people to truly keep the law by vindicating his faithful ones, even those who had died, not by destroying the world, but by making all things new, which necessarily included raising the dead too. And this renewal wouldn't happen automatically against a person or nation's will. No, individually and communally, what the coming king would bring must be desired appropriated, made one's own in anticipation of his arrival, even if that meant sacrifice and suffering at the hands of those opposing God's kingdom. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, the first words of Jesus recorded in this gospel could not have been more fitting. What God has promised to do, he is doing now. His kingdom is advancing into this world. Do what must be done. Match your mind and heart with his. Christ's words could not have been more fitting. Neither could they have been more political. While our 21st century minds naturally compartmentalize religion there, politics here, personal life here, such distinctions obviously had no place in Christ's day or in his message. I mean, this should go without saying for someone who taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, only if that prayer is uttered without understanding can it be imagined that what Christ brought has no bearing on the totality of our existence. 
Now, to make this even more striking for his first century listeners, Jesus said, believe in the gospel. Now, this was not a neologism, you know, a new word. Gospel was used specifically by Caesar and his ambassadors to announce the good news of what Caesar had done. And so what did Jesus do? Well, he used that precise word, but with a definite article in front of it. He didn't say, what, believe in a gospel, or even believe in my gospel, but believe in the gospel. All other gospels are simply unworthy of the name. Believe, right? That is, be faithful to what I say to you. It's a command. He can't command something that's beyond our reach. He locates belief within the realm of the will. Believe. That's why sometimes translations will say, believe on my word. Build your life up on my word. Unlike those who are exiled because of their infidelity, you be faithful. Follow me. You know, that God would be king and enlist others to help him rule. Simon, Andrew, James, and John seem to believe is true. Such were the first followers of the king of the Jews, leaving their families and their livelihoods to join someone in a sense at odds with the entire known world, just in order to make things new. Now, don't such demands and way of life seem rather far removed from our own life, our day and age? You know, watered down and tame, if not lame, have these words of Christ often been made out to be. You know, I still remember listening to the inauguration speech of President Biden several years ago and being glad to hear the biblical and religious references. Maybe you remember that too. I mean, clearly his faith and the words of Scripture had provided him support and encouragement in sad and stressful times. In this way, he's representative of perhaps even a majority of Christians nowadays. I mean, we look for comfort. We look for consolation. We look for inspiration and to feel just a little better because of our faith. I mean, how often does a priest hear, well, I left and I just didn't feel anything at Mass? That's the big marker of whether or not it's relevant. But repentance, obedience, Faithfulness unto death, heaven on earth, sacrifice and suffering and being odds with the ruling class. Separate these and judgment and objective morality. And what you have left is but a kind of coping mechanism. A therapy. Even those opposed to religion will embrace such a person of faith. For a creed like that relativizes religion. It makes it thoroughly unthreatening and uncompelling, which has to be part of the reason why the younger generations have failed to embrace it. You're consoled by your religion. Well, that's fine. We're consoled by something else. That's fine. Who are you to impose your religion on me? Friends, Jesus draws near to us today and says, it's time. You know it's time. You've been delaying this. God is doing what he's always promised to do. Repent, change your mind and heart to match and to work with his. 
You know, last week we did our annual discipleship renewal, in which we listened for Jesus' invitation and set goals for the coming year. If those forms are at the end of the pews or by now, they might be behind the hymnals. Would you pass those down just in case someone was not here last weekend? So if you would pass those down, take one if you weren't here last weekend. You know, complete them and return them either to the offertory or to the parish office. Save us a stamp, please, as we'll mail one of them to you if we don't hear back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so there are different areas in which you can conceptualize your life. So maybe you can think about it this way. Common life, maybe you could expand it. Common life, life in common. Maybe it's beyond here, but maybe you think at home, in my life in common there, I'm shirking these certain responsibilities. It's not as though Peter, James, Andrew, John didn't have responsibilities and that was not incorporated into Jesus' call to repent. So what do I need to do? Maybe, maybe you're a kid and you have a voice. You're a kid and you have a voice and maybe you think, what am I going to say to Jesus when he asked me, you could have sung in our children's choir. Why didn't you sing in our children's choir? That poor music director that you have came all the way from Mexico, and he thinks he's living in the North Pole. <laughs> Help him out. Or maybe the spiritual life. Maybe you conceptualize it around relationships. You can think of it this way. Do you roll your eyes at your spouse? Do you ever find that you roll your eyes at your spouse? Do you know that is the most significant indicator of future divorce? The number of times that you roll your eyes at your spouse is directly linked to the likelihood of future divorce. <laughs> so maybe you say, okay, I'm not going to roll my eyes. That's my goal. Or maybe you say, I'm going to give my spouse the permission to call me on it when I do roll my eyes. You know? Father said you might go to hell because of that. You know, <laughs> give that some consideration. Imagine yourself in the gospel and Jesus speaking the words to you. I mean, most likely you already know what needs to be done. Write that down. The time is fulfilled. What is Jesus asking you to do?